Well, I don't know how many of you have had the opportunity uh, to witness and cheer people on at a cross-country meet. Um, it's often not people's favorite spectator sport uh, since the runners often spend lots of time in the woods when you can't see them and the spectators have to spend almost as much time running back and forth just to get a five-second glimpse of the runners uh, as the runners spend running across the course. But it is a pretty wonderful experience to be a part of it. Now, obviously, I think that I was a cross-country runner and it, I think it's a wonderful sport. So uh, I may not be unbiased in my opinion, but... Um, but it is really a rich and wonderful thing to take in because you experience that as people are cheering runners on at the finish line, they cheer at least as hard for the last runner to finish as they do for the first. Um, and it's really cool to see like teammates come back and join the throng and sometimes there's an even bigger crowd at the finish line for the last runner than there is for the first. It's just this beautiful picture of encouragement and and I'm sure not everybody experiences it that way, but it it's it's pretty cool to be a part of. As we turn our attention this morning to Hebrews chapter 12, we have this therefore it says, in light of all the things that we just spent two weeks talking about, the writer didn't say that, but, but we spent two weeks looking at chapter 11, and as the writer leans into chapter 12, they say, think of all the things that we learned about and saw, all the people that we reflected on in Hebrews chapter 11. In light of this grand truth of all these people who are cheering us on, all these people who have gone before Let's narrow in and learn some more. So let's pray. We'll read our text this morning, and then we'll walk through it. Father God, we come before you today. We thank you that you speak into our lives. We thank you for the treasure of your word. We thank you for the treasure of your people, that we don't do this alone, but that we do this in relationship with you, in relationship with others. So as we reflect on your word this morning, we pray that you would draw us close to you, that you do the work that you describe in this passage, that you would help us to see you, to rest in you, to run with you, to run to you, and that you would be our everything. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we continue our series, Jesus is Greater, uh, and we're looking at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 11 today. And it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what, chi- what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they, saw, as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So the writer of Hebrews, in this big transition, we, we just spent this lengthy chapter thinking about all these people who've gone before us. And the writer says, there's this great crowd of people who are cheering us on. And it's not just spectators. It's not just nice people who have come to cheer us on and say, hey, that looks like fun, have a good time. But it's actually people who have gone on before us. People who are on the race alongside us. People who are enduring what we're enduring. They know the challenge and they are now with God or they know the challenge and we have the opportunity to encourage one another along the way. This great cloud of witnesses is not just spectators, but it's participants who have gone before us and who are with us. They understand what we're going through. And so the writer says, in light of this great cloud of witnesses, this huge participation of the body of Christ, let us then run this race with abandon. So the first kind of point that we gather from this text is that we're encouraged and challenged to run light and to stay in our lane. So the writer says, since we have this great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And it's one of the verses on the wall, by the way, so we can remember it often. We want to run light. We want to get rid of all the stuff that gets in our way. We don't want to, we're not going to carry this huge camping backpack on our back as we run the 100 meter dash, right? Like we, we want to 
be fast and furious. And we, we're running a marathon, not a sprint, but still we don't want to be heavily burdened as we're going through it. You know, swimmers, as they get into championship season, they shave their bodies so that even the resistance that might be caused by the hair on their bodies would not limit their ability to achieve their goals. As we run this race, set out to meet God as he's promised, we don't want to be distracted and burdened by things that just keep tripping us up. And sometimes they're things that feel very familiar. We get really used to them. Uh, one simple example. Uh, you know, in college, uh, I tried to be funny. And kind of the culture of my friend group uh, was often sarcasm. So we'd rip on each other, give each other a hard time. And then I started dating this wonderful woman who is now my wife. And there were times that, uh, especially when we were in a group of people, that I would use that sarcasm to kind of get a laugh. And then she eventually pulled me aside and said, why is it that you make fun of me when we're in front of other people? Like, you don't treat me like that in any other situation, but then we get in front of other people and you, you make fun of me. And I was like, oh, that's just how I make jokes. And I didn't mean anything by it. I love you so much. But it was clear that if I continued that practice and continued to defend it and say, oh, it's just for fun, and not hear her, that she would probably not be my wife today. And so while I didn't see anything bad in it all by myself, I knew it had a bad impact. And it's something that I didn't want to continue to carry on the race with me because it wasn't going to work. And so, so it wasn't easy. I didn't just flip a switch and it was all gone. But I, and it wasn't the only conversation we had about it. Um, But I knew that if I was going to run this race well with her, sarcasm was not going to be part of the way that I made jokes. At least not at her expense. It's like that with us in this race of faith. There are all these things that come naturally to us as human beings. Part of our family cultures, part of our own personalities, all sorts of things that over time, they're just the way we run, the way we live. But then, sometimes they get exposed as things that aren't best for us or best for the people around us. And the writer of the Hebrews says, in light of all the people who have gone before us, in light of all that they've endured, in, in light of all the challenges in their own faith that they faced, and all the things that they've overcome, let us throw off all the things that hinder us and get rid of all these sinful entanglements that just trip us up and make the journey harder. 
And so in this moment, we, not, we may not recognize what that list of things is. And uh, I heard a preacher once say he, he's super thankful because he's, he's confident that he's only aware of about 4% of his sin. And God will only allow him to, it will only expose as much as he can handle. And right now he can handle about 4%. And God just covers the rest. But as he, we learn and grow, then God reveals more things. And it's challenging to let them go because we get so comfortable with them, so used to them. But when they're exposed, when we're convicted of it, we want to let it go. We don't want to try to figure out how we can run this race and hold on to that too. So we want to run light. And we want to stay in our lane. We want to run the race that's marked out for us. Which means that God has a plan for us. And it's his desire that we would know him, trust him, be in relationship with him, and meet him in the end. In order to do that, he's set up some guardrails that say, these things are not good for you. These things are bad. And so we want to run the race that's marked out for us. You know, in a, a relay race in track, if you drop the baton and it rolls out of your lane, your team is disqualified. If you go beyond the exchange zone and try to pass the baton, you're disqualified. If you stumble out of your lane, especially if you interrupt another runner, you're disqualified. We want to run the race that's marked out for us. We want to pay attention to what God has told us, where he's guiding us, where he's leading us, and what he said we should stay away from. Because the goal is to be with him. It's what we were made for. It's what we were designed for. It's our deepest desire whether we recognize it or not. And while all these other things around us, all the other things that we can give our attention to, all these things that feel just so normal in our lives and in our personalities, when they compete with us being close to Jesus at the end, we know we don't want to carry those with us. We don't want the risk. We don't want the burden. We want to let it go. And so as God convicts us, we want to confess and repent. We want to turn toward him and away from these other things. So in verse 2, it says we do this. We want to run the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We want to focus on Jesus, master of faith and the master of endurance amid opposition. The writer says that we want to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of, our, of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We want to consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. We want to fix our eyes 
on Jesus. We want to give him our attention. You know, in most things, someone might invent this new thing. Uh, it might be a new process. It might be a new tool that we use. It might be a game like Survivor. Um, but it's often someone else who develops it and perfects it. They take the invention and then they go, oh, just think what we can do with that. And they tweak it and add to it. But Jesus, the writer wants us to understand, is unique in this. He's the pioneer, the inventor, the creator, the first one, but he's also the perfecter. He's the one that we need. He's the expert. He's the beginner of faith and the finisher of faith. All these other people that we've learned from that we looked at in Hebrews chapter 11 are still just students of the master. And so we want to fix our eyes on Jesus and trust him to get us where he wants us to go because he's the one who's marked out the race for us. We want to fix our eyes on Jesus and make sure that he's the one who's governing our thoughts, our attitudes, our goals and ambitions. Because ultimately, he's the finish line. He's our goal. He's the one we want to be with. And he's the one cheering us on. But he's not just a coach and not just a spectator. He's not just a co-athlete. He's something greater. All of those things together. And we fix our eyes on him so that he can guide us, keep us focused, keep us grounded, keep us centered, and help us run light and stay in our lane. The writer of Hebrews tells us to consider Jesus who endured such opposition from sinners so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. The writer says that for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. We think of Philippians chapter 2 in this beautiful description of the humility and sacrifice of Jesus. That he was willing to let go of the power and the blessing and the glory and the wonder of being and existing in heaven to come and enter the brokenness and the pain of our world. And not just to experience it, but to take our sin on himself. To feel the full weight of it. To be treated as if he were guilty of it. To lay down his life for us. And as we fix our eyes on Jesus and we consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, as we mocked him, as he tried to save us and said, oh, can't you be greater than that? Certainly you should be able to pull yourself off the cross if you're as great as you've described yourself to be. And the whole time, all our taunts just indicated that we didn't know what we actually needed him to do. And his willingness to let us beat him and mock him 
was the only path for us to be free from our sin. But it looked to us like he wasn't as great as he was supposed to be. Now, I would have a really hard time with that. I have this impulse to prove that I'm right lots of times. To prove that I know more than my kids know. Anybody been there? <laughs> Sometimes whether it's true or not. Um, <laughs> just to make them feel like they really need me. Um, but it doesn't always work. Uh, but Jesus is the Savior that we need. And his willingness to sacrifice himself and endure all that pain and agony, to even release his life to us, is evidence that we are in desperate need. We see in Jesus the weight of our sin. Our sin is what killed him. It matters. The burden that we carry along, if we try to carry it on our own, will destroy us. That's why Jesus came. Because it was the only way to set us free. So as we fix our eyes on Jesus and we consider all that he endured, we get a better understanding of the weight of our sin and what it costs us. But we also get a better understanding of the deep love that God has for us. That he, just, he didn't just like say, I'm done with them. But he entered our world, entered our lives, entered our shame, took it on himself to set us free. And he endured it all for the joy set before him and the joy is our goal in the end that we will be united with him. That he will be our God and we will be his people and we will live together the way we were always meant to. Now, in our struggle against sin, it says we have not yet resisted to the point of shedding our blood. It hasn't killed us. But Jesus was willing to let it kill him so that he could conquer it, put it away, and release us. So that we could run light, confess our sin, be forgiven, and be released from that burden, be made his. He's the master of faith and the master of endurance amid opposition. So as we are burdened in our fight against sin, in the battle of just living in the brokenness, pain, and sadness of this world, we look to Jesus and we see all that he was willing to endure for us. That we would be set free, that we would experience him, that we would become children of God with this promise that we will be removed from this agony and one day brought into blissful glory where we will experience God in fullness. Now we see just a hint of what it will be like, but then we will see him in all his splendor 
and we will bask in it. So the writer of the Hebrews recognizes that these people that are receiving this letter are living in desperate times. The world is not their friend, but they're tempted to think that it is. They know that they're risking relationships with their families, risking maybe even their lives to follow after Jesus. And they're starting to question, is it worth the cost? And the writer of the Hebrews says, Jesus is greater. He's greater than all the agony and he's greater than everyone who's come before. Fix your eyes on Jesus because yes, it's worth the cost. Because the cost will be temporary and glory will be forever. So we want to fix our eyes on Jesus because we see in Jesus the reality of the weight of our sin and the need that we have to be rescued. We see the commitment of God to enter into our brokenness and set us free. And in that we see the wonder of his love and grace and mercy for us. And then the writer transitions uh, to a lengthy part of our passage today. It's about half of it or so that talks about this experience of being disciplined. And the idea here is that training is hard, but we want to learn through the difficulty. You know, uh, for many of us, some of the things that prevent us from working out is the, that feeling of the aches and pains and the soreness that lingers and just kind of gets worse for the next couple days. I love that feeling. Um, it's very rare that I experience it. Um, and so it's such an encouragement when I actually do something that causes me to experience it. And I think, oh, I really did do a good thing. Um, The writer of the Hebrews says training is hard. But we want to understand that God is teaching us in the midst of all of it. And as we want to cast off all the things that burden us and get rid of all the, the sin that trips us up, we know that the hardships that we endure help refine us. And so as we face difficulty, discipline as it's described here, it's important for us to recognize that the word for discipline here it can equally be translated instruction. And while words often have different meanings and they mean specific things in a certain setting, I think it's helpful for us to process it as these teachable moments along the way, right? It's like a parent using everything that happens in life to say, you know, there's something here that we can learn. Now, as we experience difficulty and discipline in our lives, the hardship, certainly we want to be reflective and we want to stop and ask some questions. And when we 
experience hard things in our lives, we want to say, is this the direct consequence of a sinful choice that I made, a sinful attitude that I have? Oftentimes, when that's the case, it's pretty obvious. We know we did this thing, and this happened. But we want to ask the question, are we facing hardship and discipline in our lives because we made a bad call? Oftentimes, it's one of those paths where we know we're tempted, we're wrestling with it, and we kind of want to prove that we're strong enough to, like, go a little further into the temptation, but prove that we wouldn't fall, and then we fall. Because God tells us to resist temptation because he knows that we're weak. Uh, sorry. We, we're, it's this powerful truth in Scripture that we're instructed to resist Satan in the authority of Christ, we can say, Satan, get away from me. You have no business being here. But when facing temptation, Scripture again and again tells us to run away. Because God knows that if we stay in that battle and we try to wrestle with it, it'll break us. We just fall to our temptations. So in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the power and authority to say no to Satan but when we recognize temptation in our lives, God says, turn to me and run from the temptation. So when we experience hardship, we first want to ask, is this a direct consequence of something that I've done, said, believed? And if it is, we want to confess that and lay it at the foot of the cross. We want to turn to God and turn away from that pattern. Next, we want to ask, is this revealing something in me that's, is there an area of sin or an area of weak faith in me? Like, it's not a direct consequence of something I, I did, but is the way I'm experiencing this difficulty and my response to it, is there an indication that maybe my faith, my, my focus isn't on Jesus, it, it's maybe on something else? Is the way that I'm responding and kind of like a spoiled brat or uh, that's just one example that I struggle with. Um, is my response to this, my struggle with this situation, does it reveal that I'm not trusting God as much as I'm able? And if so, we want to trust God to refine us in that. But thirdly, we also want to know, we need to recognize that sometimes the hardship that we face, the discipline that we feel, this training exercise, and the learn teachable moment, isn't because of something in us, but it's just an opportunity, like life beat us up, but it's still an opportunity for us to see God at work because we know he always is. He's always working, and he's always working to redeem the moments in our lives, even things that we wished wouldn't happen, even things that Satan maybe caused to happen to us. God will still step into that and say, you are mine, and I'm going to take care of you in this. Look what I can do. And so even in the hardships, even if it's not our fault, there may still be a teachable moment in it where we can see 
God at work. And we want to ask the question, God, where are you in this? And what, what do you have for me in this? What do you want to grow in me? Where do you want to draw me closer? How do you want to strengthen my faith in the midst of this? And then follow where he leads. When I was younger, every time something bad happened in my life, something that I wish hadn't happened, I thought God was spanking me to just say, shame on you. You're not good enough. But as I've continued to study the scripture and study who God is, I just know that's not usually what he says to us. He never wants us to live in shame. Jesus came to set us free from our sins. So he may say, that was wrong. You are guilty. But he doesn't say, shame on you, you're not good enough. He says, that was wrong, you are guilty. And I love you. And Jesus is enough. Turn to me and be set free from that. And so I think that it's, at least in my life, it's helpful to see those difficulties. I definitely want to wrestle with those three questions because if there's an opportunity for God to reveal in me that there's sin in me and I'm carrying around a burdenous weight that I don't need, then I want it to be exposed so I can help trust him to cut it loose in me. But rather than fearing God's discipline all the time, the writer of the Hebrews says, it's important for you to remember that good parents discipline their kids. And that their discipline, most of the time, even for us sinful people, is meant for the good for our kids. Like we really want to teach them something and help them along. There are moments when we just want to get even and we know that we have the power to do that. And we need to confess that as parents. But you know, Jesus said, <laughs> you're broken sinful people. And even as parents, if your kid asked for something, you wouldn't like give them something dangerous and risky. Well, all the more, God gives good gifts to his kids. So the writer of the Hebrews wants us to experience that in these moments of discipline, in these hard teachable moments, that they happen to us not because God hates us, but because he loves us. And that he can reveal his grace and his mercy and his presence in the midst of it. And if we look to find him in it, he will draw us close and we'll feel his arms of love and he will carry us through. And there are times that it might be hard for us to see it, recognize it in the moment. But as we get through it, we'll look back and we'll see what God was doing. We may not always understand it. We may not always be aware of what he's doing. But we can trust him to always be with us and loving us through it. So we're going to take a moment uh, to watch a clip from a movie. Um, the movie is The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. 
Uh, it's a movie I love because it, it feels like I'm watching a movie about the craziness of me. Um, but uh, I am Walter Mitty in so many ways. But, but this scene, I think, is, it's one of my favorite scenes from the movie, and it's just a picture for us of what life is like when we really do fix our eyes on Jesus. Now, Walter Mitty isn't thinking about Jesus in this scene, um, but this clip is a picture for us of what it's like when we fix our eyes on Jesus and we cast off the things that burden us and we trust him to lead us through. should say he's been through a lot and he's on this great adventure. Uh, he's in Iceland and he's trying to get from point A to point B and he doesn't have any transportation except a skateboard. Longboard. Walter Mitty lives with the burden of responsibility in all kinds of ways. He's trying to take care of his mom. He's trying to do his job really well. He's got a very detailed job, and he's uh, in this stressful situation because they've, they've lost a really important piece uh, for him to complete his job. And so he's actually traveling the world trying to solve the problem. But in this moment, you can see the freedom when he just is like, my only way to get from here to there is this, and I can do that. Now for us, it's not, I can do that. But when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we know that he can get us from here to there. And he can release us from all the stuff that weighs us down. Because he is greater, and he's enough for us. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today and there's so much in this passage. We pray that you would draw our attention to the things that we need to say, see and think about. Lord, we thank you for the cloud of witnesses who've gone before us and who continue to go with us now. 
We thank you for your presence with us, and we pray that you would help us fix our eyes on you. You put blinders on us so that we could see you clearly and not be distracted. We pray that you would grow our faith and make us strong in you. Fill us with your spirit. Give us wisdom and discernment. Lord, it's scary, but we pray that you would convict us of our sins so we could be free from it and not carry it around anymore. So show us what we need to see and then set us free to live life with you as we continue to run this race that you would refine us so that by the time we meet you in glory, we'll be ready. In Jesus' name, amen.